0: This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Lamigo. This week, Rebecca and I chat with Michael Hart about Cloudflare workers. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 142. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly.
1: And I am Rebecca Marshburn.
0: And this is Serverless Chats. Hey, Rebecca, how you doing today?
1: I am doing really well. I'm glad. I mean, most people can't see or they're not going to see the video as we just talked about, but I'm glad that you two can only see this part of my apartment where I live. Literally everything else where the shadow touches. I just got back from a five-day backcountry hiking trip ah. and I have like it everything rained a lot. laid out everywhere. Yes, in the <laughs> Olympic Peninsula. It's a rainforest, you know, so it rained every day and everything it was just wet. So I just had to put up like chairs and everything's attached to other things and it's drying out. So it's been a good last five days and it's nice. good to be back. How are you?
0: I- I'm So I'm both sort of sad, but also excited. So I'm sad because this is our last episode before we take our summer break. But I am excited because there are a lot of cool things, I think, that are going to be happening this summer. So I'll be very excited to get a little bit of extra time to work on those. My newsletter, I'm actually going to be offering a paid version of my newsletter coming out soon. So so hopefully put a little bit more time and energy into certain things, do a little bit. Deeper analysis. give some more opinions in there that maybe are not as popular. the The opinions that I have on some things might not be as, a po- as popular as as some other you know some other opinions. So I do want to delve into that. But then also lots of cool things happening with Serverless Cloud this summer. Hopefully have a bunch of cool announcements coming from that soon enough. So anyway, so excited about that. Excited to have the free time. But I will be sad to not have our our weekly chats here. So what what are you what do you have going on over the summer?
1: Well. Plenty of things going on over the summer, but I'm very excited about one specific thing, and that thing right now is our guest today. Yes. Would you like to introduce him?
0: I would. So our guest today, we've had him on the show before, a long, long time ago. This was like on episode 18. So what was that, like 230 years ago? I, I can't remember. But our guest today is a principal engineer on the workers team at Cloudflare. Uh, he's a former AWS serverless hero. Michael Hart is here. Hey, Michael, thank you so much for being here
2: great to be here good to see you guys
1: it's good to see you too i'm very excited for people who don't know michael was a former serverless hero and that is how i met him as well so i was an avid listener back in episode 18 both him and jeremy two of my faves
2: yeah we were all just Serverless heroes hanging out
1: just hanging out
2: in the before times (laughs) In,
0: in the before times it was it was a good time well back then even back then i know cloudflare workers was announced i think in 2017 or something like that but when it first came out you know it was just sort of um, sort of like cloud front functions although cloud front functions didn't exist back then but just this idea of manipulating things at the cdn i think fastly was already a thing at that point too but a lot has changed though because i'm just writing my newsletter today and like all of the serverless database offerings that are out there now, like just so many of them like constantly coming out. And then all these edge networks, all these uh, container scaling platforms. I mean, the marketplace, and the ecosystem has just exploded. I mean, even from, what was it? It was 2019 or whenever that episode was that, you, that I had you on. So I'm curious, a couple of things. So at Cloudflare now, you're working on the workers team. So maybe we should just kind of reset here and, and talk about that. So one, you know, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself and then what you're doing at Cloudflare, and then let's get into workers and sort of how they've evolved.
2: Yeah, sure. So prior to this, well, prior to this, I had a nice six-month break. Prior to joining Cloudflare, I've been with Cloudflare now for two months. And prior to that, I was VP of research engineering at Bustle Digital Group, which is a media company, all sort of on serverless. So doing lots of serverless things for them. And, and that was when we, that was my role when, when I was last on, on serverless chats. I, I actually, I, I should ask, and I didn't ask this in our pre-show chat. Have you had anyone describe workers on serverless chats yet? I, don't think,
1: I, I don't think we have. You're the one, right. Michael. Well, You're the okay. one.
2: Well, yes, I may as well start there then because I noticed I had a look at our transcripts from, from episode 18. I did mention Cloudflare workers at the time because I was comparing it, contrasting it with Lambda. So for people who are familiar with AWS Lambda and, and similar offerings to that, those runtimes are running, you know, sort of a full Node.js process or, or, or similar or a full Python process and, and running your code that way, serverlessly. The difference with Cloudflare workers is it's using the V8, so Chrome's V8 technology, and it's using its isolate model. So it's, it's JavaScript, JavaScript and, and WebAssembly, and it's running your code in isolates. And the advantage of that is it's very low overhead. It's much yeah. faster to spin up an isolate, and you know, it's called an isolate because it's isolated you know, from, from other isolates running in the same process. But you're not sort of spinning up an entire container or or anything like that each time you're you're using using the sort of technology that chrome the chrome team has written to to keep you know individual tabs and things like that separate and and to keep to keep javascript um from interfering with each other cloudflare uses that technology and workers to keep people's serverless code running separately so that's that's sort of one big difference there it's a it's all JavaScript essentially JavaScript and, and WebAssembly. So anything that can comp- compile to WebAssembly or JavaScript you can use as well. But it's not, it, yeah, it's not the same as a container model or even Lambda, which you know is kind of a hybrid. You, you know, sort of containery type model so yeah that's one big difference the other big difference is it's an edge product as you mentioned and so it's running all of this at the edge which the advantage of that of course is that it's closer to the user's eyeball as as the term as the technical terminology likes to use so you have the you have the code you have your your serverless code running really close to the user's eyeball so it spins up fast the latency is really quick because it's in a data center you know we have like 270 data centers more around the world so it'll pick the closest data center and be serving the code from there like you say it started off as sort of a way for for cloudflare cdn customers to augment their requests in the same way that i guess lambda at edge did but it 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 did it in a much i i think a much sort of smoother way Mm -hmm. and a much more light touch kind of way and yeah it's got plenty of use cases in that realm i think you know plenty of big customers have used it because it essentially allows you to kind of inject anything you want into a request coming into you know if you've got cloudflare sitting in front of your entire site you can intercept any request you know with a worker and modify it you can a classic example during covid there were some some big pharmacies you know and and things were changing so quickly then you know there were. People trying to book vaccinations and things like that, and they were constantly having to put up notifications or whatever. And it was a it was a really easy way for them to just inject HTML into the page, right? Because you've got access to the full streaming HTML in and out from a worker, and so you can just modify it on the fly. You can so it was really easy for them to say add a banner to every single page on their site, right. regardless of what backend technology they were using. They didn't need to you know, fudge around with, okay, this part of the site's using PHP, this part of the site's using Java, whatever. You can just modify it on the, on the fly. So that's kind of where, where workers started. But then of course, if you, if you think about a world where you don't have an origin, so you don't have anything behind the worker, the worker itself can deliver HTML, you know, to the, to the eyeball, to the user. So, so then you have a world where you can, you can create full apps and full sites just from workers
0: right and that's and that's one of those things where when it first started it was very much so like manipulate you know manipulate the stream that that's coming back and there's all kinds of like you said great use cases for that i mean there's still great use cases for that i like especially like the ability to route things. I mean, just one of the things we use Cloudflare workers a while back just to route or to do three, like basically redirects to different origins, but use the same domain name, right? So it was just Mm -hmm. totally cool that you can do that as essentially you route a different origin and pulls the data back and it all loads on the same URL or the same domain name, and then you just, you know, can change the change, whatever the the path is and stuff, and then route that correctly, which is very cool to do, especially if you're combining multiple technologies, like you said, but since then we've now sort of gotten to a point with workers. And of course there's pages and a whole bunch of other products that, you know, that Cloudflare has, but we now kind of gotten to the point where it's like, it's now it's an edge without an origin, like you said, right, where you can actually now build the full apps there. So tell us a little bit more about sort of like what what is, what is the breadth of the full apps now that you can build like i mean right I don't i'll, want to say the I'll limitations, try i'll try like and how, remember all do?
2: of all of the things but yeah so that it's it's come leaps and bounds i mean I, I remember when i was at bustle and we used workers at the time to build an originless file system we, we used it to to replace our front end which was a a Preact server-side rendering app so we we kind of got we kind of got that all running in a worker and it was at the time talking to a Lambda backend that was a GraphQL server. And so that, that was years ago since, and, and, and at the time we couldn't, we couldn't really use it. It wasn't quite ready. I would say, you know, four odd years ago uh, for that use case. Since then it's, it's sort of come leaps and bounds it's you know it's now got a lot of those production features that you need like logging and 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 you know the the ability to kind of debug this sort of stuff in production which which is what we needed at the time and now it also has a whole bunch of other features like you know state stateful data sort sort of features so that's that's one big difference where I guess if you, if you don't have an origin and you're trying to create, you know, you're tr- you're trying to return HTML or maybe you're trying to return an API response or something like that. It's like, well, what are you doing that on the basis of? Are you are you talking to something on the back end? And and you could at the time and, and you still can, you know, Cloudflare can talk to any HTTP compatible database. Like it could, talk, you know, could talk to Dynamo. It could talk to anything like that. But Cloudflare since then has added a whole bunch of features. The first of which was Cloudflare KV, which is a, which is a key value store, essentially an eventually consistent key value store. So it it kind of relieves, I, I guess, initially if you want if you wanted a whole bunch of data in your Cloudflare app originally, you would kind of have to bundle that in with your JavaScript. Mm. You know, you could. You could have it there like a big table of data you know a big object of some kind but you would you would have to bundle it in with your app and if you wanted to change it then that would mean a redeploy which is super quick on Cloudflare workers but still you know annoying so workers kv came out and that that opened up that use case of where you wanted data at the edge and you wanted your workers to be able to access this data and and it's for use cases i guess where you're you're writing relatively rarely, but reading, reading heavily and you want low latency. I guess prior to GitHub pages coming along, you might have used it for a, you know, for a, for a, as a CMS or something right. like that. You know, that's a perfect use case for it. I mean, you still could use it that way actually, but perhaps Cloudflare pages, which is the sort of Jamstack offering might be better for that these days. But yeah, so that's Worker's KV. Yeah.
1: So. Michael, you we have this list of things that we want to ask you about in terms of Cloudflare and Cloudflare workers. And right. the first on the list was, tell us about workers KV. And then, you know, we had a couple of questions around it, but then you went into, it was like, what can you do with that? And it's like, oh, he just answered that. He also just answered that. <laughs> Actually, he answered that. But we have a few other things on this list, right? We have R2, we have D1, SQL Lite. So maybe you could go into a couple of those and describe and those as well. Durable. before For sure. For sure. Durable, durable, durable objects. Yep. That's right. Yes. Yeah.
2: That's probably the next, I'll, I'll go kind of chronologically with like the way that I, when Cloudflare released them. So kv is great for scenarios where you're happy with eventual consistency and you want low latency but if you want something that's strongly consistent uh, it's not a great option because you you might write you know i guess if you think about it these values are being propagated to every kind of edge node all 270 nodes it can when you write a value it can take you know seconds for that to update all around the world and during that time you're kind of you're in you're in this inconsistent state so if you wanted to write a value read a value write a value read a value it's not a great solution for that durable objects came out and it solved that that problem and also another problem of of kind of coordination so it's it's sort of the opposite where it's a it's a singleton data object that is living just in one place and you can you can use it to coordinate coordinate things. That's that's one aspect, I guess, of a fully stateless system at the edge is it can be very difficult to coordinate who's talking to what. And this this comes to light when you're trying to do something with web sockets, like a chat room or something like that. You kind of need a central place for those web sockets to be communicating in and out of for consistency and, and for coordination reasons. So Drupal Objects came along and it kind of solved that problem. It's It's strongly consistent and it uses, it uses a sort of object model. So you create this durable object and, and it lives in a particular, a particular. Region and all the rights go to that one, that one object. And, and it's sort of, it's single thread. It, It makes, it makes a lot of those difficult consistency problems quite easy because it's single threaded. So you can read to it and write from it and know that your reads and writes are consistent and that sort of thing. The one thing that it doesn't have is that it's not distributed all around the world. It's just sort of living in the one place. Yeah, so that's that's essentially what durable objects are for. That and and this idea of coordination, because there's the one object, well, you can now use that to coordinate multiple workers trying to do a whole bunch of things. Chat rooms are perfect example. I think clouds built to a queuing system, you know, like, like if you want, if you want tickets to an event or something like that, and they're all going to be released at 1130, then you know, your site is going to get slammed and you kind of want to stick people in a queue so that first come first served. Durable objects is a great way to, to achieve that, that sort of scenario. Yeah. So that was Durable Objects and that works really well. And then recently Cloudflare announced another product called R2 which is essentially Cloudflare's S3 offering. So it's it's objects, it's it's buckets. Sorry, it's it's sort of bucket storage, storage for large objects, and and it's it's essentially it's it's essentially the same as S3. It's just um, one thing that's great about Cloudflare is it has very low or zero egress fees. So egress is the kind of fancy term for outgoing b- bandwidth. Right, and anyone who's got Which sort of AWF a AWS large... will get you. Yeah, anyone who's got a large <laughs> S3 footprint knows that that's that's where a lot of your money can go, you know, especially if you've got a big site and lots of images and stuff like that. Yeah. That that can really add up. So so that's that's where R2 is coming from is it's it's a way for to store large large objects files essentially and and be able to access them, you know, from workers and from your site and and things like that. One, one kind of cool thing, I guess is a good way to tie in, one kind of cool thing about workers is you, you can create, the way that it interacts, the way your worker interacts with all of these extra services, so whether it's KV or Drupal objects or R2, is it creates bindings. And a binding is essentially just a way of saying, hey, this worker will want to talk to this Drupal object and it then becomes accessible in the worker's environment just as, as a variable. You know, you don't, you don't need to do any any complicated hoops with addressing or anything like that. It's just, it's available there as a, as a, as an object in the JavaScript environment. And then that has some advantages of course, behind the scenes for Cloudflow, because it means it knows that it can optimize certain things. Cloudflow is incredibly good at intelligently routing requests across the world. You know, that's the, the network stuff is what, is what we're really good at. So if we know that, that, you know, this worker is going to be talking with With this object then obviously we can kind of ensure the shortest path to or from it there's another there's another model called service bindings which is a way of a worker to talk to it to essentially have a binding to another worker so this is a great way to split up your apps as they become bigger and bigger and and anyone you know who's kind of dealt with a with a lambda app at a certain stage has you know knows this problem well as of trying to divide your app up into Different parts, but maybe maybe still from a mono repo, and and Cloudflare has this concept of service bindings where you can you, you can just talk to another worker as f- from a bound variable. Behind the scenes, we can do some really cool optimizations with that, where we can actually run them potentially in the same isolate, and then that that mm. and we pass on those cost savings to users as well. So whereas a lander, you'll you know you'll always be in separate, completely separate kind of containers in this model. If if we know that it's the same user, and we can run things together, and let's say one worker's waiting on a response from another worker, well, we won't charge you for the time that you're waiting. Whereas you know, I guess in, in the equivalent sort of AWS style thing, if you've got API Gateway and Lambda, where well, you're paying for the time that API Gateway is waiting for Lambda to come back, that that's that's one thing actually that I've kind of come to realize, being at Cloudflare, is that it's the workers. Product and and Cloudflare as a whole is a little bit more of a seamless experience, I would say. Which you know, some some people might view as a as a good thing or a bad thing. But mm. for me, it's a little bit like if you took, I don't know, WAF and Lambda at Edge and Cloud Front and API Gateway and Lambda and rolled them all into one product, and then just had like different checkboxes for which kind of feature you wanted. And that that has you know big advantages when it comes to things like i don't know a streaming request or or whatever right you can't you just can't deal with that in lambda you can't the, the the request stops at api gateway and then forwards to lambda and comes back and there are some advantages to that model but overall i think especially for http sort of models it's nice to just have the the smoothness of the the requests kind of flowing in and out of, of this kind of one big system. And then you can have your DDoS protection. You can have your security stuff. You can just kind of flick that on without needing to bolt on a whole other service and figure out how to connect it to your yeah to your pieces.
1: It's like the express train in the New York subway. You know, it doesn't yeah. have to make every <laughs> yes. stop. You're like, you're getting there.
0: <clears throat> well,
1: I yeah,
2: mean, exactly. You know, th- something that's
0: really interesting about yeah, that... You don't have to change
2: that. from train to train,
0: yeah. Something that's interesting, I think, about that too is uh, there's this... I mean, there's always been this big thing about the two pizza team and these separate. Everything's a separate microservice at at AWS right. and so forth. And not that that is necessarily a bad model because they can work very fast in in isolation and whatever. But then you always get that problem. It's like, well, now we have to assemble these things, put them together. So you have a lot of teams talking to different teams and so forth. And I always remember, I actually it was like a Honda Accord or something like that that I was looking at. I don't know years and years and years ago. And I remember that. I get into to to test drive this thing and there's a, a sort of the screen that has the navigation and a couple of different things, you know, a couple of different features on the navigation screen. And then below that, there was a touch screen that was just for the audio controls. And I'm pretty sure that like there were two different teams that designed these two things. And then they're like, all right, now we have to fit them in the car. They're like, yeah, but this doesn't work to get... So there are literally like two systems to control. It, it made no sense. I mean, now they're all integrated because somebody figured that out. But that is how I feel... About a lot of the Lambda stuff, like you can't do you you can't do streaming HTTP with with Lambda, right? Because you can't route that through the API gateway the same way. Then you have the payload limits, and you have all these other things that run in, into that. And then they introduce the 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 URLs, the the Lambda URLs, but then the function URLs you don't have any control over, you know, throttling or some of these other things, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff that I think they're trying to figure out workarounds at this point to make. Right things work as opposed to, I think, where Cloudflare sort of looked at it very much so as a as a unified system.
2: Right. Yeah. It's just kind of extending the existing system that's there. And what's been amazing, actually, is to see how much dogfooding is, is done in Cloudflare. I'm, I'm sure this is true of many big companies. I'm sure AWS does this as well. But I'm not sure that AWS, you know, writes all their new services on Lambda, whereas Cloudflare is like using workers for everything, like everything now is written on workers, which is great and an awesome sort of testament to you know how much how much we kind of believe in it and i must admit back back in the day when it first launched i was like okay this is cloudflow workers is really cool but are they really gonna be putting their you know all the all the effort behind this is this a product that i can kind of trust and or is it just a toy that they're putting out there And it's been amazing over the years to be like, oh, okay, no, they're really serious about this. It's, yeah, it's really becoming a thing. And I guess, I guess internally, like, you know, it's just, it's such an easy way internally to create new products using workers compared with some of the other ways that you might have to write, you know, native modules or whatever for, for the systems that exist. So yeah, internally, the teams have loved it as well.
0: Well, I, I'm reading an article right now that said Cloudflare is rebuilding its CDN service on its workers' serverless API, something called Project Flame. Oh, I don't know if cool. you know anything yes. about this.
2: I do. I do. I do. That's cool to see that it's it's now public. Yes, that's essentially what it is. That's that's it in a nutshell. We're kind of rewriting as much of the of the front end you know, side of the... I guess the entire kind of API gateway, the entire proxy, front end proxy in Project Flame. You could tell yeah, that Jeremy was actually cool.
1: reading that article right now because his eyes got <laughs> really awesome. big as he's like focusing on these words. Well, let's talk is about that, that something a that was bit. announced
2: for, um, for Cloudflare 1 or? I uh, think
1: so. There's a lot going on. I was going to say, yeah, one, one cool one cool yeah. thing
2: at Cloudflare is they, they have so many of these innovation weeks. And a lot of these things have, have kind of been announced at various innovation weeks. The most recent one was the platform week where a whole bunch of things were announced. And that actually, that was something that you mentioned, Rebecca, that I haven't chatted about yet, which is D1, which yes. is the yeah. data let's storage. Go there. Why wasn't it D2? Yeah.
0: So you had R2, D2. Is there a <laughs> reason? <laughs> I oh, Let's just... Say maybe watch Feedback. this space. There will be a D2 eventually. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I I have
2: said nothing. D one D one is essentially SQL light at the edge, strongly consistent, built on the same sort of primitives as durable objects, but you know, with a with a kind of familiar SQL interface that everyone knows. Not that everyone knows. That many people know that there's plenty of resources out there for and, and I think it'll be great for, you know, there's this huge long tail of companies and, 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 you know, e-commerce sites and things like that out there. I think that they don't need, you know, they don't need an Aurora database. They don't even need an RDS database. You know, that's like, that's just too much. 50 bucks a month for the amount of data that they're storing. Now they could of course use, use DynamoDB or, or, a, or a, you know, a MongoDB or, or some sort of NoSQL offering. And I, I, I still think that's a good option, but it does for many people. And especially I think for like consultancies out there and things like that, it means learning another data model right? Whereas the advantage of SQL is it's, it's not, you know, MySQL and Postgres aren't exactly the same, of course, but there is a, there is a a very common understanding, uh, very common similarities with the, with the dialects of SQL that they talk and just the general concepts of a relational database. And so, so what D1 is, is a way for, for people to be able to write you know, write their sort of storage using SQL and have it have it available at the edge in their workers. So it's so it's yeah, it's great. It should be really interesting. There there are plenty of really interesting use cases. I mean, it's very early stages. It's just kind of in a private beta at the moment, but there are very interesting places that it could go once you once you kind of have that model and SQL Lite. You know, it's just super cool. It's it's very lightweight engine and it's it's really stood the test of time and and being used in plenty of places. So yeah, it's a perfect example, I think a perfect use case for, for someone who has like an e-commerce site or something like that, where, you know, they want to store, they want to store their products. They want to store their customers. They want to look them up. They want to do joins. They want to be able to display that data. They want to be able to write it. They don't want to think too much about, yeah, again, stuff like eventual consistency and, and stuff like that.
1: You talked about internal dog fooding and how impressed you were mm-hmm. with how much you, you all do that and how you build everything on workers. And I think there's there's something special that happens there, right, when you are that, let's say, obsessed of, of doing internal dog fooding. That also mm-hmm. means that if you're the developers, you're also improving your own experience before you're putting it out into the world. Or you're understanding where the experience, where the gaps are, what fails, what feels good, what feels bad. So let's talk a little bit about the developer experience. And I think you have something called, is it Wrangler? Um, Wrangler,
2: yeah, yeah. Not and how the, does not that make jeans.
1: it? <laughs> but maybe <laughs> those <right>. two. Um, <laughs> how do how do a great pair of fitting jeans? Um, no, how does Wrangler make it easier to build with workers? Like, how does that affect the developer experience? What are you all doing? Yeah, about? I
2: guess so. So Wrangler is is the sort of the CLI the CLI experience the, the console experience for building workers, and it's it's sort of fast becoming or or you you, know, you could say is now the primary way to sort of quickly spin up and iterate on on a worker's app so i guess i guess a pretty good analogy in a way would be cloud formation for those in the aws world you know you, you can you can specify it, it is infrastructure as a service in that sense in that you can specify all the parts of your app that you need and then run wrangler you know and and it will it will push them all out there and and it has it, it's where you would define, you know, some of the, the things I was talking about before, like the bindings where you would define whether you're binding to KV or whether you're binding to a two or another, a service binding or something like that. Yeah, that's that's essentially what Rainflow is. It's also used for for pages, for Cloudflare pages. And internally, yeah, it's interesting you, you chat about the developer experience because it's, it's interesting for me now being on that side where, you know, you have other teams essentially that... You know we're supporting now and 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 in our internal chats people are like oh hey how do i do this how do i do this with workers you know can you let me know you know how do, how do I, I want to spin this thing up or i want to spin that thing up And it's like oh cool that's that's someone internal you know that's that's exactly the same sort of thing and so yeah then that drives obviously drives the developer experience and drives the way that we make tools like wrangler better one cool thing actually i was thinking about this the other day about wrangler that i like that i'm not sure i've seen in any other sort of infrastructure as a code style config is for durable objects when you want to say add a new durable object or modify it maybe you want to rename it or that sort of thing you'll do a migration and you declare these migrations in your wrangler file so you'll sort of be like okay here's version one of the the durable object version two you know is a rename can rename action i want you to rename from this to this version three, and, and they just sort of sit there in your config file and, you know, in time kind of grow. But it, I, I, it's quite cool to then have like, you know, your migrations kind of listed there with your config. You can kind of see where things have gone and where they're at currently. And it's a good way of declaratively sort of saying, okay, this is, this is the state of, of our data. At the, this is what our schema looks like at the moment. Yeah, that was something I noticed the other day that I'd never seen before.
0: Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. Gain full visibility into Lambda invocation flows quickly with Lumigo, the cloud monitoring and troubleshooting platform that helps developers like you see the whole story end-to-end. Resolve critical issues in serverless and distributed environments, giving you better insights into your Lambda's mind. Start free today at lumigo.io. So another thing about developer experience too is also like familiarity, right? When you have to learn something new, I mean, you mentioned NoSQL and or data modeling in NoSQL, mm-hmm. like it, it's just hard. Like I mean, there's a lot of different things you have to think about. Of course, then you're limited in terms of how you can query stuff or whatever. But just thinking about familiarity for a developer. So right now, I think Cloudflare Workers support JavaScript, Rust, C, C++, right? Anything like you said that can be compiled to. Um, WebAssembly or JavaScript, I think will will run. But then you also have support for like a number of third party modules, but you're not running node, right? And I think a lot of people are right. familiar with NPM, you know, node package manager or whatever, and and they're used to running node modules in order to do a lot of things. So there's a support for third-party modules. You can import different things. I think you can make, you know, fetch calls and all that kind of stuff, right? So you can interact with APIs and, and other things external to your to your uh, to your workers. But Are there certain types of modules that you can't use because of the the, the model?
2: Yeah. So, so you you hit the nail on the head there, where I think for server side JavaScript for so many years, the answer has been Node. Like, actually, you know, back when when Node was starting, there there were a few options, and I I guess they're. There still kind of are, but Node is by far the biggest, you know, non-client, non-browser implementation of JavaScript. So I guess it's kind of become the de facto, of course, in a way, and and that's where NPM started. And so most NPM modules are written for Node. Although now that I say that, that might not be true anymore because people have been using NPM for browser modules for a very long time. Actually, you know, just as a as a way because there's no there was no other module system. For browser modules, so there actually probably, like even prior to Cloudflare, there probably were a whole number of browser modules that wouldn't even run in Node because they were expecting browser APIs. But you were obviously expected to use them in a browser. Cloudflare uses V8 as Node does, but you know that that just means that the very core JavaScript runtime is the same, and and so things like strings or dates or you know, all all of those sorts of primitives are the same in in Node and and Cloudflare Workers or or any any system using V8, really. But beyond that, once you start getting into APIs like Fetch, you mentioned is is a perfect example. That's something that is you know goes beyond JavaScript. That's something that is then part of an API standard. And in Fetch's case, it's a, it's a web it's a web standard. You know, it's it it kind of replaced. XML, HTTP, you know, the original Ajax kind of way of fetching things. Cloudflare is built as much as possible to be compatible with web APIs, as opposed to Node, which was written at a time when those things didn't really exist. So Node wrote its own HTTP client, you know, completely from scratch because there was no real HTTP client or way of making HTTP calls aside from the very clunky way that browsers did it at the time. So node kind of existed at a time when a lot of these apis weren't being worked on in 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 browser land other examples are things like streams streaming streaming data you know and so node ended up creating its own node.js streams but since then there have been web web standards around streams streaming data in and out and so cloudflare uses those so basically cloudflare uses the The service worker model, which a service worker is a thing you can write in in a browser in in your client-side JavaScript. And Cloudflare is built on that kind of model. And so as much as possible, Cloudflare is trying to support web APIs and and the sort of standard ones that if you go on Mozilla, MDN, you know, those APIs, the request, response, fetch, all the streaming stuff, all the crypto, the crypto stuff using, so using web crypto as opposed to, again, Node, Node Node.js crypto. So that's, that's a bit of a departure and, and the ecosystem is just much younger in that sense. And I should say Dino has done exactly the same thing. Mm. So Dino, Dino, when Dino came along, Dino is another, another, you know, server side JavaScript option, a JavaScript slash TypeScript option that also uses V8 and uh, written by, written by Ryan Dahl, the guy that created Node actually. Created Node. Hence the name Dino (laughs) Node. Um, if I could
0: do it again, uh, yes, would I essentially. Essentially, if I could do
2: it again, this this is how I do it, and and it's taken a very similar path of trying to be web API, um, you know, stand compatible, and and there are huge advantages, of, of course, to that. There's eventually anyway, because people will know these APIs and they'll be standardized. You won't be kind of context switching between the browser and and the server side, but there are some things that you just can't do in the browser that maybe. If it was only left up to browsers, they would never implement APIs for it all. Right. You know, a classic example might be accessing the file system or something like that, right? You don't ever want to be able to do that from the browser, but maybe you do want to do that from the server side, you know, and and, and Dino certainly has a way of doing this in its own kind of Dino under its own Dino namespace. So they've, they've had to like create their own API for it. But what Cloudflare and, and Dino and a bunch of others have been working towards is this this group called the Winter CG group that was announced recently during our platform week, which stands for Web Interoperable Runtimes Community Group. As I read that out because I'm not gonna render it. Um, <laughs> but this is this is a working group essentially to to establish APIs for non browser you know, use cases, but still to be standardized and, and in, I guess, standardized in the same flavor as the web APIs are. So to use the same, you know, where possible use the same stream APIs and that sort of thing, but, but potentially for use cases outside of, of what the browser would be for. So that's really exciting because, because that should enable Enable a bit more standardization in that space and getting back to the original question of yeah, so what what can and what can't you run in workers? There are definitely you know developers out there that that come and they try and create a worker and they pull in a node module. you know maybe it's using nodes HTTP or nodes crypto or nodes FS module. and those things just aren't available in a worker. Now, in time people have been writing, you know especially because because node did introduce the fetch the, and and start supporting mm-hmm. the fetch API. So in time, people have been kind of updating their their modules, um, their NPM modules to support some of these newer APIs. And I should say Node, Node is working towards trying to be as standards compatible as possible as well. It's just obviously it has a lot more legacy. So right. it's, it's, you know, it's potentially going to move slower than than maybe what some of the others can. But there's certainly no, yeah. There's no intentional sort of competition there or anything like that. It's just, Node it has a lot of legacy stuff. It's trying, it, it will also, I think, try and add as many of like web API compatible things as possible. And I think eventually you will see the entire JavaScript ecosystem using these, these sort of APIs, these standard APIs, as opposed to just node specific APIs. There might be, a, you know, I can imagine there'd still be very rare cases where they might diverge on, uh, you know, uh, obscure technologies and things like that. But by and large, I think the plan would be to so that you can write write your JavaScript and run it anywhere, essentially.
0: Which would be nice. Which and and it's probably going to be easier to create standards now that IE eleven is dead. Yeah, um, right. and is officially a- gone. <laughs> Yeah, so that's certainly the, true. The bane of my existence was IE6 for so long when I was yeah. a web de- when I was just doing web development. Oh, studies. I
2: certainly don't. I don't envy any of the standards <laughs> people, any of the sort of no. API and standards people, especially in the JavaScript world, because, you know, the number one tenant is basically don't break the web. So anytime people are like, hey, we should build this new thing, it's like, okay, here are the 2 billion things we need to consider if we're going <laughs> right. to, like, add this thing, it's like... You know, you don't want to break this random website that was written in 1996
0: that, you know. Right. So, well, so this this winter CG group, super super interesting. I mean, web standards uh, is just something that once you know, what was it, it was the like gecko first, and then it became the, Chrome. whatever the, the I forget what it was called, but the, basically the standard. You can probably it, just it,
2: look at any browser user agent and figure out the order of like, right, how right, it like where like, it came like, to,
0: but everything sort of, everything sort of started standardizing around certain things. And I think that was just great because then it allows people to build more things for more systems and more compatibility across stuff. And I think that that's something that I'd love to talk to you a little bit about too, is is just open source in general, Mm -hmm. because you've done a ton of open source projects, including some really, really popular ones like Dynalite and LAMCI. I don't know if you ever really did much more with Yumda, but I remember we talked about Yumda way back then, which was some pretty cool stuff that you were doing with, with that. And you actually wrote, and I might get this wrong, but I'm pretty sure you wrote the original like local runtime for Lambda functions that the SAM team eventually used. That might be a source object. So we can, you know, put that aside, but, but I'm just curious, like with all the stuff that you've done, and I know you took a little bit of time off and like you said, you know, when you, you were away for a while, uh, taking some time. You didn't work a lot on those, those uh, open source projects. I'm the same exact way. I've been so busy and it's just like, it's like trying to get back to those projects and get my head back into the space where I was working. The reason why I created them in the first place. And some of these other things, like I've moved on from some of those technologies too. So it's really, really hard, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts on just being an open source maintainer and your perspective around that. Like what, what's that, what's that been like for you?
2: Yeah, it's been really interesting. I'm I'm sure you could you could have like hours long chats with people about this. You guys could be my therapist. Working on working on open source and and you'll see, you know, I think I think this is true for many people who have done it. It's it there are so many things that are so gratifying about it. It's it's so wonderful to be able to sort of contribute to the community and and the barrier to entry is so low now. Like it's very funny to think back to a time when open source wasn't the norm. Right. Like you know, in uh, early in our careers, that was that was the case. When you, if you wanted, even if you just wanted a library or something, it could be really difficult to to get it. You know, a software library, and you, you need to pay for a license or or or. Even if it wasn't pay for a license, the licensing was sort of a big concern. And it's fascinating to see since then just how how much open source has taken over the bulk of so much of the plumbing of of software that's built today. And I guess it you know it, it probably there's heaps of reasons for it. I'm sure part of it is it it just does feel really good to build something and put it out there, you know, and 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 just the joy of. I think for many people who are in the software world, you get joy out of building things, and and that's that's sort of why you why you why you stay in the business and and why you keep doing it is you just enjoy creating you enjoy creating software and you enjoy scratching itches you know a lot mm-hmm. of open source software is created just from sc- scratching an itch. I, there was this thing; it didn't quite do what I wanted. I'm going to write it, but there's no you know what's the benefit in me kind of keeping this just to myself or maybe just to my company? You know, I guess things things get a little bit complicated there but certainly if you're just writing something to solve your own your own sort of developer pain i think a lot of the time when it is oh i'm writing this for for something that i'm doing at my job there's just the question of oh is this core ip for my right. company or not you know is this core intellectual property if not i think you know these days companies are just a lot more open to well yeah that's fine you know just release it as a library or as a little helping thing and and people i think have seen the benefit of the branding that comes along with that like hey wow this this company built this particular thing or this company built built this particular thing actually yeah I'm, I'm thinking even today like we write we write a bunch of go code at cloudflare um there's a particular light and and we use kafka which is which is a messaging service and there's a particular you know kafka client out there um sarama written by the shopify people and yep. you know we just use that client but then shopify is a customer of Cloudflare as well <laughs> you know it's right. like it's like we're a customer of their code they're a customer of us but there's lots of cool you know sharing and, and i think there's a real community aspect to it that is great but so having said all all that, all that all that lovely stuff there's people are people you know and and we know this from social media we know this from anything is that once i guess once you just kind of it's very easy to forget when you're using software and you're getting frustrated with it and it's buggy and it's you know you're trying to do something in your day job and you can't get past this point because maybe the documentation's bad or maybe it is actually buggy or maybe there's just something wrong with it that's super frustrating and you're like oh, god damn it this thing doesn't work and you know in that moment it's very easy just to go and leave a snarky comment or a github issue or something and just be like this thing's broken it doesn't work and i think you know plenty of people of course they. They step back and they, I think by and large, actually the, the open source community is great in the way that people interact and write issues generally is, is actually pretty nice and pretty considered. But it can, it can take a toll after a while, I guess, if you just feel like, oh, I created this thing and the creation was really fun, but now I'm having to maintain it, you know, now yeah, there's this really weird edge case that this person has. And how much time is it going to take me to fix that thing? It's probably going to take hours. And that's not going to be like joyful hours for me. So what am I actually getting out of this? You know, and there's, and and there are a bunch of things. There's, I guess there's a bit of pride. There's a bit of, well, I feel like I made a promise actually to the community. When I put this out there, I kind of, by putting this out there, I kind of made a promise. Hey, people use it. Even if I didn't say use it, and a lot of time people put stuff out there and they're like, hey, don't use this. I'm <laughs> just putting it out there. Please don't use it in production. And then, you know, a few <laughs> weeks later, 10,000 sites are using it. But yeah, I think th- th- there's that. There's this element of, well, I kind of promised people that, that, you know, they could use this thing. And, and so, yeah, that with great power comes great responsibility. And, and there's a certain responsibility to, to keeping your, Open source libraries up to date. If you want people to be using them, and and vice versa, if you're using an open source library, you have to keep that in mind. That you know, is this person going to be keeping it up to date? And if not, what options are there? Will you, you know, will you fork it yourself and and look after your own fork of it, etc., etc.
1: I I was just going to say. So under this open source question, I have multiple sub bullets, and these sub bullets, right, or it's something that you've touched on. I think in the last couple minutes, you've touched on each of them. And one is ensuring quality and consistency. Are there tips and tricks to doing that? Is there something that you should know going in as to someone who's going to be an open source creator? What do I need to know? Do I need to schedule out my time? Does this have to end up being like on the calendar? Like, how do I need to even allow myself the time and space to, to actually maintain this? But right. then I think we can set that bullet aside for a second, because I think the two other bullets that I have, one is, you know, you called it scratching an itch or maybe solving a point in time problem. And so it's this bullet around ensuring longevity. So not only how could we do that, but like, should we even try? Or at some point, is it like, hey, I'm going to let this self-destruct over the next six months to 12 months to two years to six years or whatever that time frame is. And right. maybe it's OK. Like, maybe it's OK that it goes into like, obsolescence over time. Right. And then the last bullet, it was about then how if someone is going to use a library, right? Like how what's the best way for them to test the usefulness or reliability or longevity of one of those projects, right? Like what's, what would you say? Like, Hey, obviously it's, you know, some people are very clear and they're like, don't use it in production. And then later, like, you know, a month later it's 10,000, but like, yeah. Is there like, are there, you know, red flags that one person should look out for to be like, okay.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All very interesting questions. I think as you were talking, I was realizing that of course, open source runs a huge gamut, right? There's there's people that write libraries and little tools, you know, like Jeremy or myself. And then there's huge projects like Kubernetes or like, you know, these massive right. projects, Chrome, you know, like <laughs> just huge projects run by teams of people at a company. And they're, they're probably, I, I guess I have less experience at that sort of scale. You know, at that scale, it's almost like running, you know, just running a commercial operation in a way it's maybe... Well, I guess you're doing it as your day job. I was going to say, is it maybe even more thankless because people feel even more justified in yelling (laughs) at you when something's broken, but it is, I guess in those cases for those big companies, they're being paid for it. So I guess there's an element of that as well, but I guess that wasn't the sort of open source that I, I was thinking about or talking about, but it it is a very important part, obviously of, of, the kind of ecosystem, but yeah, getting, getting to the question of longevity, I, I think it's a really hard one because for a long time, I prided myself on someone who kept their libraries up to date. And certainly, you know, I had some principles in mind. Some of these are sort of maybe JavaScript ecosystem specific, but maybe not. I think I've actually seen similar problems in in the Rust world and, and the Go world and other places where dependencies are a real problem and and not just with open source obviously with any library but because so many libraries that you use now are open source they rely on other libraries that are open source and they rely on other libraries that are open source and and you know you can end up with these sort of massive dependency trees and from very early on for various reasons i was always a fan of you know no dependency or very little writing code that had very few dependencies now that sometimes means of course reinventing the wheel a little bit or Or copying and attributing yeah copying and pasting and attributing some some mit or or bsd licensed code or something like that and 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 so yes there's duplication of effort there and potentially if the thing that you've put into your you know that you've copied and pasted has security issues or, or whatever then you're not you're not Going to get the benefit of someone else you know updating that but for the most part the sorts of code that i would do that for were were very sort of small one-liner very small functions anyway you're very very uh, a small data structure or something like that i haven't run into any any security issues with that stuff but i could imagine that it could happen but the advantage of that of course is that then when people install your thing six and six months down the track if you haven't made any changes to it well no changes are made to their code base either. You know the problem right. can often arise when you install a library. The library itself hasn't updated, but some of its sub dependencies have, and they get updated, and then maybe something breaks because you know there's just at a certain point it gets so far removed from the from the original library or the original utility or whatever that that they weren't even aware that this sub library was doing this thing that's now broken. It
0: just gets um, heavier and yeah. yeah.
2: So so that would be one piece of advice. And I'm, I'm sure I could think of many examples where that's not a good idea, but generally I feel like reducing the number of dependencies that you have is a good rule of thumb if you're writing open source. And if you're picking an open source library, especially picking one that has fewer dependencies, I feel generally, as a very general, you're going to end up with less headache down the track and less you know, hair pulling out, less issues trying to debug it, less jumping around the, even just jumping around the file system, trying to figure out, wait, where is this coming from? Which particular, you know, which of these hundred dependencies is this behavior that I'm seeing coming from? Yeah. So I think that's, that's a good, that's a good rule of thumb and a nice, I think a nice, a nice sort of design pattern to keep in mind
0: well michael I, I hate to I hate to cut you off, but we're we're out of time and uh, I think we're gonna have to have you back on just to have a episode about open source because <laughs> yeah. I got a million things that I'd love to talk to you about with this, especially things like you always like people leave comments and they're like, oh, this doesn't work, whatever, or I need that to support this. And you're like, okay, well just, you know, create a PR. If you, you know, if you've got the time, then you create the PR and then you look at the PR and you're like, all right, there's no tests. Like it's like, Um, you know, so then you're like, well, I can't just merge this in and break Twenty thousand people who I are know, downloading like they this did the like, right
2: thing but they didn't yeah. quite do it <laughs> 100 percent right. No. right and then you rewrite yeah. it
0: and you're like i hate this why is this so tough anyways yeah. open source <laughs> is amazing and scary and terrible yeah, and yeah. also amazing. i should, at the I should same drop time. a
2: plug and say that um cloudflare workers runtime is being open source as well which oh, is cool. super cool Very so cool. yeah so at the moment you can't like run your javascript code locally in exactly the same way that you can remotely. There's lots of cool remote debugging stuff that's available, but yeah, there's no local runtime exactly. Anyway, there's, there's lots of things that are very close, but yeah, we'll be open sourcing that. So that's cool. And I think that'll be good for people to, to at least have that assurance of being able to look under the hood a little bit as well, know what they're running in production.
0: Awesome. Well, we will look out for that. So, so Michael, thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this stuff. Like I said, I think we're going to have to have you back for an open source conversation. But if people want to find out more about you or Cloudflare workers and all that stuff, what is the best way to do that?
2: Google, Google, Google Cloudflare workers. <laughs> but I, I should say the Discord, the Discord is is one of the kind of the newer ways that we're supporting people. And there's awesome conversations there. I'm I'm finding it so much better than any of the other sort of support forums or just general chat experiences yeah. and and it's great it's great to see the community supporting each other as well as you know there are plenty of Cloudflare people on there to answer questions as well so yeah check out our discord
1: and if you want to learn more about michael specifically you can find him on twitter at Heichel Mart, which is my favorite was twitter handle uh <laughs> github Heart medium Heichel Mart again you could probably just Google him and find out all sorts of things as well. Um, we're going to put all this in the show notes. Michael, usually I let you give all those aliases and handles, but I'm going to roll them out you. For you. you knew and them. You
2: knew them. I knew, him. I knew them. I knew them. Of course I
1: know them. That's part of my job. I actually knew them by heart. I've I've committed them to my heart years ago. But Michael, thank you for being our final guest before we head out for the summer. Thank you to all of our listeners um, who have spent time with us and more importantly, who have spent time with our guests and I hope everyone has a really wonderful summer. DM us, DM Jeremy or myself, or Michael because now you know all of his handles.
2: Yeah, guys, that was great. That was very fun and have a have a great summer.
1: All right. thank you.
0: And that's this week's Serverless Chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Michael Hart for being our guest this week and to our sponsor, L'Amigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 142. For more Serverless Chat, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with Rebecca on Twitter, at Becca Odale, and me, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. We're off for the summer, but we'll be back later this year with all new episodes and more amazing guests. Thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to chatting with all of you again later this year.